the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the 36th chapter and the 27th verse. The 27th verse in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, I'd better remind you of the context by reading again from the beginning of verse 24. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle, sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, I'm calling your attention to this particular 27th verse and to the surrounding context because here we have a perfect declaration and statement of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The words have other references. They undoubtedly have a reference to the then condition of the children of Israel. They may well have a reference to some future condition of Israel. But what is abundantly clear and quite unmistakable is that it is also a most amazing foreshadowing, foretelling of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what it does to all those who believe it. Now, I'm calling attention to it and doing it in this particular form because it seems to me that more and more men and women who do not enjoy the blessings of this Christian salvation, this Christian message, are in that position and in that condition because they have never truly realized what the gospel is and especially what it has to offer. There can be no question at all about this. It's a fact which is uh, on the surface almost incredible, but we all know perfectly well that it is a simple fact. That because we all tend to think that we know what the gospel is, there is a sense in which we have never heard it until a given particular moment. Because a man who thinks he knows what a thing is, is never prepared to receive instruction. A little learning is a dangerous thing. And people imagine and think that they know exactly what Christianity is. And for that reason, they've never really faced it. They've never really known what it is. Now, this isn't a bit of theory on my part. I'm speaking uh, out of a pastoral experience. I'm speaking out of what I know to be the truth. 
Because as one has the privilege of talking to people about these things here and elsewhere, one is so constantly discovering that, that there's some basic misconception, some failure to understand or to grasp one of the very first principles of the gospel of Christ. There is only one explanation of all this, of course, and that is that it is the result of the work of the adversary of God and the adversary of the souls of men, the devil, who insinuating a false idea of Christianity into our minds never allows us, in a sense, as, as best he can, to face what is actually the truth. Well, now then, you see, as we look at this description of the gospel, I think that point becomes abundantly clearer. Now, there is no failure on the part of men and women with respect to the gospel, which is perhaps quite as great as this. It is a failure to understand and to grasp the completeness of the gospel. All along we tend to stop at certain points. And because we stop at those points, well, we not only never have an adequate conception of the gospel as it is itself, but to that extent also we fail to reap the benefits which it can give to us. Now, as we go on, therefore, from step to step in this uh, picture that we have here of the gospel, that point, I think, comes out very clearly. Now, you notice the statement is put in general in this way, that what Christianity offers to do is to deliver us out of a captivity. It is something that will take hold of us and bring us out of amongst the heathen and bring us back to the place where God intended men to be and where God will bless him. That's really the whole purpose of this Christian message. It isn't uh, just a call or an invitation to you and to me to do certain things. It is that, but long before it comes to that, it first of all announces what God is going to do to us. We need to be delivered. We need to be set free. And that is what the gospel does. Well, then uh, it goes on to tell us how this happens. And I've been emphasizing the all-importance of taking these things in the order in which they're given here, which is exactly the order in which they're given in the New Testament. The first thing we all need in this life and in this world is forgiveness. We need to be cleansed from our sin and from the guilt of our sin. We need to be washed. We need to be sprinkled clean from all our filthiness and all our idols. And the gospel offers to do that through Jesus Christ and him crucified. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. But it doesn't stop at that. It only starts there. Let us never forget that it does start there. What you need, my friend, if you're not a Christian this moment, what you need, first of all, is not help, it's forgiveness. And you'll never have any help from God until he's forgiven you. We need to be in the right relationship to God before God will bless us. God is not going to bless those who are not reconciled to him. 
The first thing is to be brought back to God into the true living relationship. You must start there, and that implies forgiveness and reconciliation. But then we have seen also that we need, in addition to that, a new kind of faculty. Why is man in misery and in wretchedness? Why does he sin? Why does he ever need forgiveness? What's the matter? Well, the matter is this, that he's got a mind and a heart that are alienated from God. He's become an enemy of God and regards God as his enemy. And so we need a new nature, a new heart, a new understanding. And we've seen that God also promises to give us that. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. He's going to take out the stony heart. This obdurate heart that's impervious to truth. And he's going to give us a heart that can understand and comprehend. He enables us, in other words, to think spiritually and to be interested in spiritual truth. Very well. But you see, even that isn't all. And it's here we begin to see more clearly the comprehensive character of this salvation. It doesn't stop there. And it doesn't stop there because that in and of itself is really not enough. Now, we've arrived at this point. We can see that our sins are forgiven because Jesus Christ has borne them in his own body on the tree and suffered their penalty and their punishment and thereby we are washed, if you like, in the blood of Christ, and our sins have been removed. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who has been made sin for us. All right. We've now got some kind of understanding of this truth. Ah, yes, but this leaves us with this problem. How are we to live this Christian life? That's the question. You see, God says he's going to bring these people back from Babylon and their captivity back to their own land. Yes, but uh, what's the point of doing that in a sense if they're just the same as they were before? Because it was in that land they went wrong. It was there that they sinned and turned their backs upon God. Won't they do the same again? It's all very well to be brought back to Canaan, but how are we going to live a godly life in Canaan? How can we keep God's commandments? How can we honor his judgments? Now, that is the next problem which confronts us. And I think this is a point at which many people stumble as they consider this gospel. It's this whole problem of the need of power. This whole question of the need of strength and of help. How often have people put it like this? We all, I'm sure, have felt it at some time or another. We listen to the gospel and we say, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I can see that my past can be forgotten, that my sins are blotted out. I see this new understanding, this new insight into truth. 
And I'm on the verge, as it were, of giving in to it and yielding to it, when suddenly I think, Oh, it's all very well to believe that and to give myself to God and to Christ in this meeting. But how can I live the life? I feel the power of it while I'm sitting here in a chapel and listening to it, or as I read it at certain times. And I want to give myself to it. I'd like to be like that. But I know that in a sense the whole thing is futile because I know that if I do that in this service or in some similar service, well, I'm still the same person and I've got to go back and out into the same world and London will still be London though I've been in a service and have felt powerful things. The world and the flesh and the devil don't change. And I know that my own nature is weak. How often have I felt I'd like to live a better life? How often have I wished that I could live a better life? How often have I tried to live a better life? And I've really meant it, and I've taken my resolutions, I've made my vows, I've promised others, and I've meant it, and I've intended it, and I've done my utmost, but I've failed, and failed miserably. So what can I do about it? It's all very well in a sense to talk about being put back into Canaan. But the question is, what guarantee am I that I'm going to be different from what I was before? How can I obey God and live this godly life? Now I say that there are many who have stumbled at that. They don't want, as they say, to make fools of themselves. They're afraid of being carried away at the moment. They say there is the stark reality of life and its temptations, its problems and its difficulties, and my own weakness. Very well. You see, such people have never realized what we are told in this 27th verse of the 36th chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy. Having done the other things, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, again, I've got to emphasize a principle which has been recurring right through our consideration of this passage. You notice that it is still God's action. You still notice this blessed I. Oh, here's the initial error I sometimes think, that men and women forget that salvation is God's work from the very beginning to the very end. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't ask you to make yourself a Christian. It doesn't ask you to change your life. It knows you can't. It knows that you can make some superficial reformation, but you can't change your nature. The leopard cannot change his skin. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin, nor the leopard his spots. No, no, it's God who is going to do all these things, and God is going to do this further thing. What is it? Well, this, you notice, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing more wonderful about the gospel than this. Indeed, in many ways, it is the very essence of this Christian message, this Christian faith. 
Here Ezekiel looks forward to the day of Pentecost and to the marvelous and the wonderful thing that happened there when the ascended glorified Son of God sent down and poured forth his Holy Spirit upon the church and such amazing and astonishing things happened. It's a part of this gospel of salvation. It's a part of this message of redemption. God is going to do this further thing. Now let me show you how vital it is to grasp this. If you read that book of the Acts of the Apostles, you simply cannot understand it apart from this particular promise. Look at those people, people like the Apostle Peter and others whom we read about in the Gospels and who cut such a sorry figure and who can be and were such miserable failures. Look at a man like Peter, who when he was challenged as to whether he belonged to Jesus Christ, said, I don't know the men, and did it three times, denied him with oaths and cursing. And he did it all simply to save his own skin, because he was a coward, because he was afraid of death. There he is. Look at all those disciples, fumbling, stumbling, Our Lord speaks to them, tells them about his death and resurrection. They can't grasp it, they can't understand it, they object to it. What fools they seem to be, what simpletons. And then look at them in the Acts of the Apostles. How entirely and absolutely different they are. What a boldness appears in Peter. What an understanding of the scriptures, what an ability to preach. These men, says someone, who have turned the world upside down, have come hither also. But they were just ordinary fishermen, ignorant men in a sense, and yet they were able to work miracles and to do marvelous things. What is it? The answer is that God had fulfilled what he'd prophesied here through Ezekiel. I will put my spirit within you. The Acts of the Apostles, as we sometimes call the book, is really the acts of the Holy Ghost in and through the apostles. It is this energy, this power, this divine strength, this afflatus that comes upon them. That's the explanation. Indeed, you can't understand the story of the Christian church throughout the centuries apart from this. This power that has gone into pagan lands and has revolutionized the lives of people, cannibals becoming saints, men and women sitting in the darkness and the squalor and the filth of sin becoming noble citizens. What is it? Is it merely education? Well, if it is, why doesn't it do it in this country? Is it the mere exhortations of men? Why doesn't it do it everywhere? No, no, there's only one answer. It's this power of the Holy Spirit. It's this energy of God. And therefore I say it is absolutely vital that we should understand it. And it's not only true in general like that in the whole history of the church. You'll never understand the life of a single individual Christian unless you grasp this. Christianity is the most revolutionary force that this world has ever known. This is something that really does so change men that not only do other people have difficulty in recognizing them to be the same, they find it extremely difficult to recognize themselves. There is no more perfect 
statement of Christianity than that of Paul in Galatians 2.20. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I am myself, I'm not myself. I am Saul of Tarsus, but patently I'm not. I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm a new man. I'm a new creation. What is it? The power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, go through that book of Acts again. Look at Saul of Tarsus. Look at his conversion there in the ninth chapter. Read it. Look at the other cases. Look at the Philippian jailer. On the verge of committing suicide in desperation, the next moment rejoicing in God with all his house. What is this? Go through and read the biographies of the saints of the centuries. Your able philosopher and yet your dissolute immoral men, Augustine of Hippo. What is it? I see him now, a doctor of the church, a great saint. What's happened to him? Has he got a new philosophy? No, no, it isn't that. It's a power that has entered his life. It's the power of this Holy Spirit. My dear friends, this is a vital part of Christianity. This isn't just a little moral teaching, you know. This isn't just a new ideology. This isn't some idea that you put over to men. No, no, men cannot be changed fundamentally by ideas. They can change their ideas and up to a point it will affect their lives. That isn't the gospel. The gospel is the Holy Spirit being put into us by God himself. And it's something absolutely different. Now then you see that this is absolutely basic and central. Had you realized that, I wonder? Is there somebody doubtful and hesitant about Christianity? Are you afraid of some future failure? Are you saying, what's the use of giving myself if I know I'm going to fail tomorrow because of what I am and because the world is what it is? My friend, the answer is, I will put my spirit, my spirit, within you. That's Christianity. This gospel of the spirit sent by Christ to those for whom he's died and to whom he's given the new mind and understanding and enlightenment. He goes on, I will put my spirit within you. Oh, what a doctrine. My spirit. What's it mean? Well, it's the great doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is none other than the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity. That's what Christianity means. I've often quoted it before from this pulpit. Let me say it again to establish this point. John Wesley, no mean judge in these matters, used to say that his favorite definition of Christianity was the title of a book that he'd read by a man called Henry Scougal, a Scotsman who'd lived towards the end of the 17th century. Henry Scougal wrote a book, and this was its title, The Life of God in the Souls of Men. That's Christianity. The Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. There are three persons there. Don't try to understand this. I don't understand it. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. 
That's my spirit. And God says, I will put him within you. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and revolutionizes his life. Nothing less than that. Be clear then about the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just an influence, is not just a power. The Holy Spirit is a person, as much a person as the Lord Jesus Christ was, as much as God the Father is. And here is this wonderful thing. The Holy Spirit, the third person, is going to take up his tabernacle within us and dwell in our very bodies. It's a great and an extensive doctrine. I'm not going into it this evening. I simply want to emphasize one aspect. His power. The power of the Godhead. The power of the Holy Spirit that has been doing the things that I've been describing to you. It's all in that book of Acts. It's everywhere in the history of the church. His might, his power, it's invincible. It is irresistible. There is no limit to what he can do. And God puts his spirit, this spirit, this person with this power within our lives. And so he enables us to keep his commandments and to carry out his judgments. Very well. The question confronting us is, how does he do this? Now, there are many answers to that question in the New Testament. I read one of them to you at the beginning in the seventh chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, a most perfect statement of the problem and the answer. It's all in a verse, as a matter of fact, in the Epistle to the Philippians in the second chapter and in verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for... It is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now then, let's interpret this in the light of those statements, and let me divide it up for you like this. How am I to live this godly life? Well, the answer is that God the Holy Spirit works within let me put it like this in a preliminary manner. And I know nothing about this gospel that is more wonderful than this. You are not left to yourself. God doesn't just forgive you and give you a new insight and understanding and then just leave you to yourself to battle it all out. No, no. He puts his spirit within you. You are not left and abandoned in this struggle against sin. He comes to you. He takes up his abode in you. And his energy and his might and his power begin to work within you. Now, you remember our Lord, just before his death, he offered up a great prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. You'll find it in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and amongst other things, he offered this petition. Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You see, this was the position. 
The Lord Jesus Christ was about to be crucified, about to die and rise again and go back to heaven. And here he leaves this handful of followers, simple, ignorant, fallible, frail men. Men whom Satan had defeated and had got down. Men who, as I said, had failed in so many respects. He leaves just this handful and his whole honor is in their hands. He says, I am glorified in them. He leaves them in this great world, opposed to him, so opposed to him that he crucified him. Opposed to the devil and opposed to hell. What chance do they stand? Ah, he prays for them. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He'd already told them that if he went and after he'd gone, he would send his spirit upon them. Well, now here it is, the spirit and the word, and God answering the prayer by sending the Holy Spirit upon them. And what he does, of course, is to work in us in order to produce that desired end. Now I want to make this particularly clear because people have often been confused about this. You notice that this is still the action of God. As God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. As he says, a new heart also I will give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. Notice how definite and certain it is. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. What do you mean, says someone? Well, I mean this. There are some people who seem to think and to say and to teach, alas, that you can accept your forgiveness and your justification from God and decide either to accept or refuse this further offer of sanctification. To me, that is a denial, not only of this verse, but of the whole teaching of the New Testament on this subject of sanctification. There is no gap between justification and sanctification. The God who is going to wash me is the God who puts his spirit within me. It's all his action. You can't be a Christian who is just forgiven and no more. There is no such thing. The process is one. There are steps and stages and it's God who takes the first and the second and the third. It's he who manipulates it all. Work out your own salvation. It is God that worketh in you. I'll tell you why I'm emphasizing this. It would be inconsistent in God just to redeem us and to rescue us and to reconcile us to himself and then leave us as we were. Why did God send his son into this world to die for sinners? Do you think it can possibly stop at forgiveness and leave us as we were? I say it's unworthy of God. What a vast, what a grand concept this salvation is from beginning to end. Can God leave it like that? It's incredible, it's impossible. And indeed he says specifically that he's not going to leave it at that. 
God is not going to put us back there and leave us as we were. No, no. He's going to make certain that we keep his commandments. I will do this. Why did Christ die? Was it merely that you and I might be forgiven? Well, the New Testament doesn't say that. It says this. Who gave himself for us? That he might separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He died that we might be forgiven. Thank God, but he doesn't stop there. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Can he possibly leave the job half finished? It's an insult to God. No, no. When God starts this process of salvation, he goes on with it. He cannot leave us just justified alone. No, no. The moment we are justified and born again, this other process has already started and the giving of the Spirit guarantees it. But my friends, I want to make this very plain and clear because to me it is a very vital matter. I read a statement the other day by Charles Finney, Charles G. Finney. You've read of Finney and of the revivals that took place under his ministry in America over a hundred years ago. Well, I read this in an article written by Finney in 1840 in the Oberlin Evangelist. Thousands of people had been converted under his ministry. But by now, Finney had ceased to be an evangelist and he was teaching in a college. And looking back, he said this. He said, most of these converts of mine are a disgrace to Christianity. He said, if I had my time over again as an evangelist, he said, I'd preach nothing but holiness. Very well then, my friends, let's be clear about this, I say. So let me quote to you from the first epistle of John. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him, by which we mean this, that we believe that Christ has died for us to reconcile us to God. All right, do you say that? You believe that Christ died for you. If you do, says John, if you say that you have fellowship with God in Jesus Christ and him crucified, and yet walk in darkness, go on living in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But in the second chapter of that first epistle, John goes further and he says this in verse 4. He that saith, I know him, God, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know, it's a very serious thing, this. If you say that you're a Christian because Christ has died for you and are still living a life of sin, you're a liar, says John. It's his language, not mine. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. 
Hereby know we that we are in him. So if you claim to be in Christ, and that you believe Christ has purchased your redemption, and has reconciled you to God, and you're rejoicing that you're in Christ, that's the way to know it. Because you are keeping the commandments of God. You can't separate these things. You can't stop at forgiveness. You can't stop at the rebirth. You must go on to this, the giving of the Spirit, who enables us by His power. Well, now then, how does He do this? It is God that worketh in you, says Paul. How does He do the work? Well, He answers His own question. He worketh in us both to will and to do. And you see, both these things are necessary in us. Because as we are by nature, we don't will these things. We don't want to. We've got a carnal mind. And our wills are opposed to the will of God. The natural mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And that is what we all are by nature. Nobody need deny that. It's a fact, isn't it? We all of us by nature are rebels against God. And our wills are opposed to God. Very well then, the first thing that I need is that something be done to my will. And the Holy Spirit does it. It is God that worketh in us both to will what does he do? Well, this is what he does. He first of all shows us sin for what it really is. This prophet Ezekiel puts this very clearly in the 31st verse of this chapter. He says, Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight, for your iniquities and for your abominations. Of course, while they were doing these things, they didn't loathe them. And they didn't loathe themselves. But after the Spirit has come, they look back and they say, Is it possible that I ever lived like that? Could I ever have sunk to so low a level and been so vile and so utterly abominable? Ah, oh, that's the work of the Spirit. It is he alone who can show us sin for what it is and as it is. In its vileness, its ugliness, its foulness. What a horrible thing it is. Oh, I'm not only thinking of drunkenness, you know, and adultery and murder. I'm thinking of jealousy and envy and spite and malice and ambition, one of the ugliest of all. Oh, what a foul, horrible thing it is. But he takes the Spirit to make us see that. And he does it. And thereby, he's already beginning to influence the will. When you see its horror, you hate it and you don't want it. But he also shows us the beauty of holiness. Oh, what a clean thing it is. What a pure thing it is. I remember once a woman who'd been a paid medium amongst the spiritualists. I remember such a woman being converted and becoming a Christian. And I said to her, well now, how did it happen? And she said, well, this is how it happened. I leave out the details. 
She was prevented in a most extraordinary way from going to a spiritualist meeting where she was to be a medium and to be paid two guineas for being one. And she had to come into a Christian service. I said, well, now, what happened? She said, well, this was the first thing that happened. And the thing, she said, I could never forget again. I came, she said, into that meeting. And I was conscious that there was a similar power in that chapel as there had been in our spiritualist meetings. But there was this tremendous difference. This seemed to be clean. She was not only conscious of power, she was conscious of something clean that she'd never known before. The evil power forces are very powerful. There are evil spirits and don't depreciate their might and their strength, but they're vile, they're ugly, they're foul spirits. But this spirit is the Holy Spirit and he gives us a glimpse of the beauty of holiness. The saintly life. The life of Christ himself and those who followed him most closely. And uh, as the result of this, you see, he begins to create a desire within us to be like that and to have that. Holiness which we hated before and laughed at, we now desire. Our Lord said, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. For they shall be filled. <laughs> My friend, do you think it's possible that a man who's lived a lifetime steeped in sin and in the gutters of vileness can ever desire and hunger and thirst after holiness and righteousness? It happens. It's precisely what the Holy Spirit does. The man himself could never do it. But the Holy Spirit can do it and he does it. But then you see he goes on. And he shows us our own true nature and character. I needn't keep you. Paul has said it all for us in the seventh of Romans. I now see sin in its vileness. I see the beauty of holiness. I want to be like that. I'm going to be like that, I say. And then this is what I find. To will is present with me. But how to perform, I know not. With my mind I desire to observe the law of God, but I find another law in my members, opposed to the law of my mind. The evil that I would not, that I do, and the good that I would, I do not. Oh, wretched man that I am, I'm hopeless, I'm two men, I'm pulling against myself. It's a perpetual tug of war. There's a contradiction in my nature. There's a horrible dualism in my life. What can I do? It's hopeless. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I cannot. Have you ever come to that, my friend? You know nothing but the Holy Spirit ever makes a man speak like that. The natural man doesn't speak like that, does he? He can do anything. He's got it in him to live a life like Christ. He talks about the imitation of Christ. He talks about changing his life. He made a change. He puts himself right with God. That's the natural man. When the Holy Spirit has worked in a man, he's not only given to see the horror of sin, the beauty of holiness, but his own tragic weakness. The law in the members dragging me down so that I'm a mass of contradictions and paralyzed in failure. 
that so he works in me to will. Oh, he creates a longing and a desperation, and I cry out. I need power, I need strength, I need something within me that can enable me to do what I want to do and to cease doing what I hate. It is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do. This is where the power comes in. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The Holy Spirit with his divine might enables me to mortify the deeds of the body within me. Though I'm forgiven, they're still there. Though I'm regenerate, they're still there. These powers in the body that drag us down it is only the might and the strength of the Holy Spirit that can enable me to mortify them, to strangle them. If ye, says Paul, in the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans in verse 13, but if ye through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And without... The power and the strength of the Spirit, no man can mortify the deeds of the body. It's impossible. But with the Spirit, it becomes possible. Not only that, you see, he enables one to live this divine life. He enables one to live the Sermon on the Mount. Surely you say impossible. The Sermon on the Mount says, love your enemies. Can any man do that? No, not in his own strength. But filled with the Spirit, he can. Do you remember the story of a man called Stephen? A man who was filled with this Holy Spirit. And there they are stoning him. He'd done them no wrong. He'd done no harm. He was simply a Christian. And they stone him in anger and in wrath. And there he is dying. And you know what he's doing as he's dying? He's kneeling and praying. And this is what he prays. Father, lay not this sin to their charge. He is loving his enemies. The power of the Spirit within him is enabling him to live the life that the Son of God himself lived and who taught us to love our enemies and to do good to them that hate us and to pray for them that use us despitefully and malign us. He enables us. And he alone can and does. And you know he'll give you spiritual abilities that will amaze you and astound you. I've often put it like this. Do you know that he takes the work of the power and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable a man to enjoy the Bible? I'm not surprised that men say they find the Bible dull and boring. The Bible must be dull and boring to every man who hasn't got the power of the Spirit within him. It is only the energy of the Spirit that can give you understanding and appreciation. Isn't prayer an impossible task? 
Haven't you almost given up in despair many times when you've been trying to pray? What a task is prayer? It is. It's a task that's impossible to the natural men. But with the energy of the Spirit, one can pray. Oh, let me even put it like this. It's one thing to talk. It's another thing to preach. It's one thing to deliver a sermon. It's another thing to speak in the energy of the Spirit. And I can assure you that there is almost an eternity of difference between the two things. He alone can enable one truly to preach the gospel. Oh, let the Apostle Paul sum it all up as he always does in this great phrase. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. There is one who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy. That's how he does the work, in the will and the doing. He prepares the mind, he creates the desire, he leads everything to it, and then after we've seen it, he gives the energy divine, the power that amazes a man himself, and he asks, is it I, is it possible? And my last point is this. He will continue with this work until we are perfect and entire and faultless and blameless without any spot. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. He which hath begun a good work in us, says Paul, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh yes, let me quote Jude again. He is not only able to keep us from falling, but to present us faultless. He's going to deal with us in his energy until we shall be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Listen again to the apostle in the fifth of Ephesians. Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it, that, in order that, he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's why he gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. You see, he is going to do it. And I say it with reverence, he must do it. For in heaven nothing unclean shall enter in, Without are dogs and sorcerers and murderers and adulterers, says the book of Revelation. Nothing unclean or impure shall enter in. How can anybody dwell in the presence of God that has a vestige of impurity? It's impossible. We must be delivered and cleansed from sin. 
We must be enabled to satisfy God's law and demand, and the Holy Spirit guarantees that. And he will go on with the work within us until we shall stand before him entire and absolutely perfect. My friend, I have but one question to ask you as I close. Is this work going on in you? Are you aware of the working of the Holy Spirit within you? Is he working in your will? Is he disturbing you? Do you still find the commandments of God grievous? Do you feel the Christian life is horribly narrow? Do you think it would be a terrible thing to spend a week with Jesus Christ? Because of the way he lived and what he didn't do. Is all this revolting to you? Is it harsh and cruel? Is your heart still in the world? Are you loving that kind of life? Well, if you are, you know, it's no use telling me that you believe that Christ died for you. Because the people he died for, he died to separate them from that. And to separate them unto himself, that they might be a holy people. He died not merely that they might be forgiven and go on like that. No, no, he's preparing us for heaven and for glory. I ask, is this work going on in you? It's a part of the process and the steps are all interlinked and it's indivisible. Are you aware of the energy of the Spirit of God within you? You're not redeemed otherwise. Do you know what it is to be filled with despair about yourself? Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Do you want to be like Christ and be nearer to him and to know him? Are you looking forward to spending eternity with him? I say there's no value in believing that you've given yourself to Christ unless there's some evidence of this. There is no separation between justification and sanctification. His commandments are not grievous to those for whom he has died and who belong to him. Very well then I ask, do you know that God has put his spirit within you? And are you aware of his presence? And are you aware that you're being dealt with and molded and manipulated? Are you aware of another who has come into you and who is drawing you away from the world? And drawing you to Christ and making him increasingly precious in your sight. Don't talk to me about the blood of Christ unless it has awakened in you longings, aspirations after holiness and to be like him. Thank God for such a complete salvation, for such an entire, for such a whole salvation. Thank God that a day is coming when we shall indeed be perfect and stand faultless before the presence of God's glory with exceeding joy 
If it's going on within you, God bless you. Yield to him more and more. But if you're doubtful or uncertain or unhappy, make no tarrying. Go to God and confess it. Acknowledge it. Say, tell him that you've been making merchandise of the blood of his son as an excuse for sin. Ask him to send the Spirit and to begin the mighty operation. And give yourself no rest nor peace until you know that the Spirit of God is in you and that he's working in you mightily, both to will and to do. And as the result, you are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Amen.